Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Mia Birdsong, who is a pathfinder, community curator, and storyteller. Mia steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. She plays an important role in pointing to people's lived experiences to inform institutional learning and transformation. In How We Show Up, her book about how we make family and community, Mia charts swaths of community life and points us toward the promise of our collective vitality. She also hosted a four-part podcast called More Than Enough from the Nation, which explores the concept of guaranteed income or universal basic income through conversations with the experts and people who actually experience poverty in America. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss the fallacy of the American dream and the crisis of love and marriage in the United States. Why are 50% of our relationships falling apart? And what is fundamentally wrong with the widely accepted belief of what success looks like in American culture? These are the questions that we pursue in this conversation, and I hope it provides a more nuanced perspective for understanding the American dream and how we can work together in this protracted crisis to better show up for each other. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. So, without further ado, I bring you Mia Birdsong. Mia Birdsong, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Today I'm pretty good. Yes, today has been a good day so far. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, Mia, the reason why I want to speak with you is because you just came out with a book entitled How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. And I thought your book was incredible and really useful as, as a way of kind of better understanding how to come together, find belonging, and find a sense of home, especially at such a sensitive time where it feels like the United States is deeply divided, which I'd like to unpack with you, but I think it's probably best to start the conversation off by simply asking, in your own words, how do you describe what you do? <laughs> That's a great question. And it is one that I struggle with, honestly. I mean, fundamentally, my work is about liberation, specifically for Black women, partly because I'm a Black woman, but also because Black women exist at kind of these multiple intersections of race and gender um, and class for the most part. And I think that when Black women are free, everyone else will be free too. And so what that looks like is a whole lot of things, which I will say is not strategic or like (laughs) deeply planned, but is largely guided by my instinct and what resonates with me. So, you know, on the one hand, I have this book that I worked on for a couple of years that was really, you know, in many ways, it was a personal journey. I was wanting to answer a bunch of questions for myself about family and friendship and community and connectedness. And I talked to all of the people I could find who I felt like had expertise on those things and not people who have like PhDs around studying social capital, but people whose lived experience I thought could teach me something. So on the one hand, that's been part of my work. But in other areas, I've done, you know, work on economic justice. I have a podcast miniseries that I did with The Nation on guaranteed income. So there's a range of ways in which I feel like that orientation I have toward liberation 
kind of manifests. And the threads are about social contracts. So both what I think our systems and institutions owe us and what's required of us to kind of help them function well and be accountable to us. And then the other side is what we owe each other um, and how we be in meaningful, accountable connection with each other and how we take care of each other. And those things I feel like kind of anchor everything that I do. Oh, that's great, Mia. I really like that. And so before we start to talk about the concepts that you share in your book, I'm curious to know what sorts of things did you learn about yourself through the process of writing this book? And what sort of insights did you kind of gain through this whole experience? You know, I think that the the kind of questions I was asking myself were about if I look at my life path and what I've achieved and kind of the frame of success that I was socialized to believe in. And I think most people who grow up in America are socialized to believe in. You know, I knew on the one hand that a lot of that was falsehood and mythology. But on the other hand, it's very hard to get away from. There's these ideas about like what success looks like and what brings us happiness. And the American ideal of those things is is very much around, you know, money and material wealth. It's an orientation toward like deep independence that is just fundamentally antithetical to who we are as human beings. But so many of us take a lot of pride in doing things ourselves. So I, I think while I knew these things kind of intellectually and certainly believed them, I also found myself struggling with the kind of insularity that American culture really promotes, um, the kind of independence American culture really promotes. And I wanted to, to figure out like, what do our lives look like? As I was saying before, I talked to experts and those in my mind, those are the people who I felt like had, are successfully living some piece of what it was I was looking for. And in doing so, <laughs> I mean, I learned so much. And I think that that my, my process of, of like self-transformation was not something I was really aware of, honestly, until like, I feel like I'm so thankful that all of that happened before this global pandemic and sheltering in place happened because I realized once we began to shelter in place and we're so cut off um, from so much of our community, I realized how much I benefited from having done all that work. I think one of the, the biggest areas of transformation for me, and I will say like, it's, I'm not done by any means, is specifically around how I think about independence, how I think about um, like asking for help. <laughs> Americans are allergic to asking for help. So many of the people who I talked to, even people who I felt like had figured stuff out, like recognize that they struggle with this. You know, in this moment, what our systems, the systems that are meant to care for us and, and support us are clearly failing. There's such a necessity for us to really show up for each other. And I feel super grateful that I am in relationship with people who are generous and that I have recognized that I need to, like I'm working on accepting generosity, right? So when somebody offers something like saying yes and not feeling like I need to be desperate or 
like suffering in order to accept support, but accepting any support that is going to bring me ease. But the other thing, aside from kind of like the collective lifting of burden that that kind of generosity creates for all of us, the other thing is that I know that like, if things got bad, like if if shit really went down, I know that these small acts of exchange between me, myself and other people are strengthening the web of support that we have. And like, this is our actual safety net. Like we are each other's safety net. And being in each other's lives this way really just like creates a stronger web. And that also feels really important right now as we continue to kind of, you know, face so much uncertainty with schools opening and the economy continues to be a hot mess and unemployment continues to grow. And, you know, we've got election coming up. Like, I just feel like the, you know, 2020 has not been playing with us. 2020 is like, is like, oh, I'm not done. So I feel like having um, a strong safety net of, of people who you can count on um, when we know that, you know, the government, our institutions and systems are not coming to save us um, feels particularly um, important right now. Oh, that's really interesting. So I'm really curious to know, what were the questions that you pursued to come up with the answers that you found? You know, part of it was like, I wanted to... I wanted to understand from people, I mean, there was like the practical stuff, like what did it mean for them or how did they practice being in relationship with the people they're in relationship with? But part of it was, I think, a sense of what it felt like. I think it feels like safety and like safety in a like, you can put your armor down, like you can let your guard down, not just when you are with the people who make up your family and community, but, but like it creates like an internal sense of safety. When you have a sense of belonging, when you find home with people who you love and who love you, there's a way in which you feel more settled in the world, feel more connected to the things that bring you protection and safety. That that's part of it. Part of it is about vulnerability, which is something I very much struggle with. But I just saw these um, and heard these really, really beautiful stories about the ways in which people allowed others in their life to care for them, to see them and to know them. And I think part of that, part of that, like finding home, as you said, really is about being known, not just for the things we do for people that they appreciate, but like, you know, for all of our like realness, for all of our flaws and our failures and the ways in which we like mess up and and compromise our own integrity, the ways in which we are hypocrites, like we all want to be known and we all want to be accepted, right, for those things because every one of us, you know, is a work in progress. None of us has like figured all the things out and totally has our shit together. And I think when we can when we can be in relationship with people who both love and accept us for all the parts of us and support us in holding ourselves accountable to our own, you know, integrity and standards, there's a way in which it, it's like it creates this super supportive foundation. And that's the thing that allows us to kind of evolve and grow as human beings. Yeah, I think that's really keen insight. And so I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on what it's like for people to show for each other as a matter of relationships. And I ask this from the context of 
the United States, which I believe to be in a crisis of marriage and in a crisis of love. Are we expecting too much from our significant others? Is that one of the reasons why relationships are kind of slowly but surely falling apart? What are your thoughts on that? You know, and this is this is kind of one of the pillars of American success is marriage. Um, this idea that you're going to find a person, you know, who completes you, who is going to fill all of these like many roles. They're going to be your housemate. They're going to be the person you like raise children with. They're going to be the person that you manage um, finances with. They're going to be the person you have sex with. They're going to be your best friend. They're going to be your travel companion. They're going to be all these things. And like, there might be like a few people (laughs) who are annoying who can like do those things well for another person and the other person can do them well for them. But for most of us, like we actually need multiple people to fill the many roles that we, you know, that we need other people for. So, and I'm married. My husband and I have been together for like 18 years. I have never been under the illusion that he was going to be all of the things for me. There's this thing that we often do when we fall in love, like we bec- we can, you know, our friendships can kind of drop away and we can become very, very myopic. And, you know, we go through this honeymoon period um, of just being very focused on um, this one person. A lot of people end up being very unsatisfied in their relationships because they're continually trying to get stuff that they need from somebody who is incapable of providing them. And they're not incapable of providing those things because there's something wrong with them. That's just not who they are. I've always had a, a like deep bench of very close friends who, you know, I travel with some of them. I They definitely help us raise our children. They are people who I feel like I'm in relationships with that are very much about our kind of like mutual personal growth. And we really have to think very differently about like what friendships are um, in order to really get the things that we need in our lives. So there's that one piece. And then I think this other thing that you were talking about just kind of like all of the division in America and this crisis of love, like people who, who believe that other people are less than human. Right. So I'm talking, thinking about like patriarchy and white supremacy. I mostly think that those people, um, that their dehumanization of other people really is like a kind of self-hatred. I think that when you, when you fully love yourself, when you recognize your own humanity, it is very challenging to, to dehumanize other people. I think it's important for me, right, that I, when I think about people who who don't fundamentally believe in my own humanity, I don't do the same thing to them, right? I don't, I don't like deny the humanity of people who think that, you know, black people aren't quite human. And I don't do that because it benefits them. I don't, because I'm not hanging out with people who don't believe I'm a full human. I'm not like, that's, you know, a healthy boundary to set um, is to not spend time in the company of people who don't recognize your full humanity. So it's not something that benefits um, them. It really is about like, how do I maintain my own humanity? So I recognize their full humanity and I also recognize their suffering because I don't think that you dehumanize other human beings unless you kind of hate yourself. I'd like to unpack your thoughts regarding the American dream and the narrative behind the American dream And this idea of agency that if you work hard enough in America, you will achieve your dreams and you will reach your goals. What exactly is missing from that narrative and how is it inaccurate in your mind? Yes. And I will say like, I'm, I was like, 
held up in many ways as like a poster child of that narrative, this idea that anyone, right, no matter what the obstacles you face or what, you know, who your parents were could with hard work and, you know, grit and determination, like you can make it in America. And we love that story so much, right? Because it is uh, fundamentally is a very hopeful one. This idea that like, it doesn't matter, you know, who you are or where you came from, you can make it. And we have all of these examples that we love to hold up. I mean, we just like a rags to riches story. This like gets us so excited. And I get it. I get why we we believe that because we want to believe that we have control, <laughs> that it's up to us. But that story, especially in a country where, you know, our founders wrote, we the people, and they were not thinking about people of color. They weren't thinking about Black folks or Indigenous people. They were not thinking about women, half the population. They were not thinking about people who did not own land. So, you know, they were thinking about themselves. So this is like a super small percentage of people who they're thinking about in terms of like who who has the right to govern, who's represented by by government, who has the right to own land and be a person and vote and make choices and have agency, right? And and most people in this country are working hard, <laughs> right? They're doing all of the things that we've been told will give us access to success. So that's one piece is that like, in terms of our narrative about success, like we need to recognize that one shouldn't actually have to earn human rights. So one, let's be clear that we've set up a system where not everybody can do that. Um, not because there's something wrong with them, but because the system is, is full of barriers. It has nothing to do with how hard people work. You know, I feel like when I look at my own success, like for sure I worked hard, but lots of people work hard. I got very lucky. That's what happened. Um, and that is not me being modest or humble. Like I think that I'm amazing and fantastic, but I also know that much of my success is based on luck and that should not be anything that determines anybody's success. When I look at economic policy in America, when I look at education policy, when I look at our food systems, when I look at our environmental policy, underlying so much of those policies is this deep distrust of poor people, specifically poor women, specifically poor Black women, a spiteful kind of need to punish people who do not meet a particular standard. And that is like where I'm like, I think so much about like, what would it look like if our policy was grounded in care and love as opposed to exceptionalism and punishment. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm curious to know, in your mind, has there been a sense of progress then? We have made a tremendous amount of progress, but so much of that progress has still been oriented toward a standard that has been set by what is represented by landowning straight white men. So all of, you know, all of our success stories that we hold up are really like all those people are exceptional. Exceptions shouldn't be our standard because by definition, like most of us are not exceptional. Most of us are average. If the things that one needs in order to like live are only available to exceptions, then we do not have a free nation, right? We do not have all of the rights that were promised to us. And I think about some fundamental rights, education, housing, food, healthcare, 
right? I think of those as fundamental human rights. And most people in this country do not have one or more of those things. And when I and I'm talking about, you know, like when we talk about education, we're talking about like quality education. If we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about quality healthcare. Most people in this country don't have those things. And um, so we're failing. We're deeply failing at that. So, and most people in this country are working hard, <laughs> right? They're doing all of the things that we've been told will give us access to success. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to make a pivot here, Mia, and ask you, where's the silver lining here? How have people changed in your experience? What has kind of come up in this moment that would have otherwise not come up? You know, I think that there's this way in which a lot of what we're doing right now is surviving, right? But I also see these kind of incredible moments of of adaptation too. One of the groups that I was meeting with monthly and now we meet twice a month. It's this group of black women. We had one of the women in the group, Millicent, led us through, we usually meet for like three hours. She led us through this whole, she facilitated a gathering that was focused on our unrest. And she did this um, guided meditation for us. And she told us in advance that we should be someplace like really comfortable. Like we could be in our beds if we wanted. So she did this guided meditation and many of us, myself included, fell asleep. And I was sort of like dreaming and I could sort of hear her voice a little bit, but I was like, I was taking a nap and it was like two in the afternoon or something. And it was like, she was kind of like watching over all of us while we napped. And I was like, oh, if we, if we had never had to shelter in place, like, you know, when we meet, we're usually before we'd meet at my house or somebody else's house, like there's not enough room for all of us to like lay down and take a nap. And I don't know that we would all feel comfortable doing that in someone else's home either. And I was like, oh, like this couldn't have happened without us, you know, without COVID and us sheltering in place. And I'm like, oh, we've actually created this like new thing um, that like, and all of us thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so amazing to just like take a nap. It was sort of like a slumber party, but, but we got to be in our own comfortable beds with like our own pillows and, like that couldn't have happened otherwise. And I just feel like that's this, that was incredible. Um, and there've just been a few things like that where I feel like, oh, these, th- there are things that we're doing that couldn't have happened in a pre-COVID context um, or would, wouldn't have occurred to us to do it. And I'm just feeling grateful for that too. So Mia, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'd like to kind of wrap up here by asking you a simple but big question. And so based on your personal experience and uh, your lived experience, How would you answer this question? What is your message for the world? I'm going to have a few. (laughs) One is always like, just trust black women and follow black women. I think about the horrendous mess we're in right now as a nation. And that if we had followed the lead of black women, we would not be here. So that's one. Two, I think is about like recognizing that there's this Desmond Tutu quote, which I'm paraphrasing, but he says this thing about how people are people through other people. So I think recognizing how much we are who we are because of the people in our lives and that we are deeply, deeply interdependent. And I think the more we embrace that and celebrate it, the better off we are. I think that means both how we be in relationship with each other, but it also is about how we're in relationship with ourselves how we show up for ourselves, how we care for ourselves. 
that feels really important. Yeah, I think that's important too. Mia Birdsong, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.